A few years ago, Alexander Family Farm became the first certified regenerative farm in the country. But the journey towards that certification started at least 31 years ago, long before Blake Alexander had even heard of the term regenerative agriculture. That's how we became regenerative. And so regenerative comes along. It's just a word to document what we were already doing. Blake and his wife, Stephanie, care deeply about the health of the soil and the health of their community. But they care just as much about the profitability of small family farms. Because if farms like us can't be profitable, then I, I have a lot of sadness for the United States. And that's the direction we've been on, and I want to be able to change that. I want small farms to be cool again and profitable and make sense again. Over the years, their small farm has grown to multiple locations and now a consumer brand which focuses on healthy and nutritious dairy products. It's investment in the farm and not the pharmacy. It's getting health through your food, not through your doctor. And so what we're trying to do is, is rewrite American agriculture story. And that's a huge undertaking. Blake Alexander talks about regenerative agriculture and making small farms profitable, sustainable, and cool on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. In today's episode, and every episode this quarter, is brought to you by our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan with foresight and farmer leaders like you to implement it. That's our Soy Checkoff. The Soy Checkoff is looking to the future of soy production needs and the needs of your marketplace. It's always looking ahead for on-farm innovations and new market opportunities to benefit you and your fellow soybean farmers. Whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, both here and abroad, investing in production research to help soybean farmers get more from every acre, or by working with the supply chain to move soybeans more effectively to impact your bottom line. By pooling resources through the Soy Checkoff, you're moving soy forward, which helps move your farm forward. Having a sound plan delivers results, and you and your fellow soybean farmers are providing it by bringing tangible returns back to you through the Soy Checkoff. You can see all the ways that your soy checkoff is moving soy forward at unitedsoybean.org. And thank you so much to the Soy Checkoff for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Blake Alexander of Alexander Family Farm. Blake is based in Crescent City, California, which is located on the very far north coast of the state. He and his wife, Stephanie, have been dairying there for over 31 years. They've raised five children who have started coming back and working for the family operation full time. He's going to talk some about the importance of that. Uh, they've been in organic dairy for about 25 of those 31 years. And in 2017, they started selling dairy products under their own brand, which is Alexander Family Farm. There's a whole lot more to this story, but he tells it way better than I could. Uh, I can take very little credit for this because this story was put together by my guest co-host for today's episode, Jennifer Barney. Jennifer is a consumer packaged goods expert who lives in the Central Valley of California and got her start in the food industry 17 years ago when she founded the almond butter brand Barney Butter. 
She also writes a great weekly newsletter called The Business of Food that you should totally subscribe to. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes for you. Uh, We covered so much in this conversation between Jennifer Blake and myself that I thought the best way to ultimately share it with those of you listening and it still comes somewhat close to our normal format was to share highlights with you. So I'm going to be popping in throughout today's episode to to narrate around Blake's story and some of the thought provoking points that he makes about where agriculture is headed in his vision for the future of agriculture. Starting here with some of the backstory on the farm and the business. Here's Blake. We have been doing organic dairy for about 25 years, roughly, maybe a little longer than that when we started, and uh, got pretty serious about that in launching our own brand in 2016 and 17. We hit the stores in late 17 with Alexander Family Farm dairy products, primarily unique in that they were high fat and A2, A2, more digestible protein. That was unique and we were the first ones to market in the organic sector and so that's been occupying a lot of our time and and money <laughs> for the last uh, seven eight years and we're having a lot of fun with that and it's really been exciting exciting enough to where our, our three oldest kids that are now married uh, have all made a career decision to work full-time for us and come back to the farm and and work in all aspects of the dairy and it's really given our, our dairy a more of a, a deep-rooted purpose. Three years ago, we became the first certified regenerative farm in the country. And um, that's like a little bit of a cherry on top in a sense of uh, helping our branding and really highlighting the fact that we've been here doing regenerative, you know, climate-smart agriculture for a long, long time. And we will talk more about what that A2A2 milk is that he mentioned there. So if you don't know what that is, no need to stop the podcast. Go Google that right now. We'll get we'll get back to that. But this is just a ton of innovative stuff between the products they make, uh, their farming practices and their business model. And while some of that innovative spirit, I'm sure, is just who they are as people. Blake does point to one specific experience that he says motivated them to think differently. I think. First, I want to touch on the fact that we had five kids during the 90s, and at one point, we were driving to visit some farms in northern Oregon and driving home with our five kids sleeping in the car, and Stephanie and I are talking about the six dairies we had just visited in Tillamook, Oregon, and how three of them were like, oh, you're from California, you want to buy my farm? No, we just wanted to learn. (laughs) And it was just that concept that, wow, these dairymen want to get out. Why is that? The Tillamook cheese is a wonderful product. It's had higher pay price than other conventional cheeses for a long time. And why is that? And so as we drove home the six-hour drive, we kind of came up with this idea that we need to make our farm exciting for our children. As they grow up, go to college, meet their spouse, make a career decision, we wanted our farm to be a viable option, not a, uh, a sentence, not a, uh, you know, not, not a sacrifice. And so we started chasing these innovative ideas. And, and so as organic came along, we're wide open to it because we're also aware, you know, that you know, Stephanie and I went to Cal Poly. All of our kids went to Cal Poly. So we met a lot of people from around the country and we saw the dairy industry, you know, really evolving. And, and, and back in the you know, late 80s, but particularly in the 90s, a lot of California farmers, dairy farmers were moving across the country 
and building really large scale dairies. And, and a very close friend of ours built a 5,000 cow dairy in Kansas at the time. And uh, that was the largest milk barn in the world at the time, I believe. And I was there for the first milking. It was a, it was just a big deal. And so I'm thinking through, we're thinking through, okay, here we are on the coast, you know, trying to raise this family, wanting it to be a bit of a legacy and a bit of a, uh, you know, sustainable, long-term, profitable farm and not, not a, a sacrifice. So how do we, how do we make this dairy compete? And so back then we were milking our cows three times a day and, and kind of high yield production agriculture, like all my friends that were on brand new facilities. We milk our cows in very old facilities, in a sense. Our newest milk barn is about 44 years old right now. And so uh, our infrastructure needs a lot of help. And so, you know, chasing the organic market because of the premium is why we started. And then we kind of fell for the concepts, hook, line, and sinker. And early on, this was one way that the Alexanders were able to differentiate themselves. But as you heard Blake allude to there, they also became big believers in organic and regenerative principles, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. But they also saw another opportunity in the lack of innovation and new products in the dairy case. We literally set our heads together saying, we want to bring innovation to the dairy case. It's a pretty boring case. You know, milk is milk, so you can't do that much with it. But we do know that the good stuff comes from the fats. So we want to be a high fat company. We know that probiotics and you know the biology and the yogurts are really good. And uh, we wanted to do kefir immediately, but couldn't figure it out. We wanted to do cottage cheese, but couldn't figure it out. And we couldn't get a dairy company processor, co-packer, to uh, work with us on a unique stream of milk, meaning that you no, know, it has to be our milk, A2, don't contaminate with other folks' milk, and then you know, give us our products. And you know, that's um a big ask and so we ended up buying this little facility in the bay area san francisco bay area in san leandro california so we now own our own little processing center and uh, got about 30 employees there and we make our own products okay so blake and stephanie have gone on this journey in organic farming and now in dairy processing i think the high fat products are fairly self-explanatory, but let's talk about this A2A2 thing. And for that, I want to bring in my co-host for today's episode, Jennifer Barney. It was her firsthand experience with Alexander Family Farm products that led to this interview and opened my eyes to the opportunities that exist out there for innovation to address dietary needs. I learned about Alexander Family Farms from the products that you have. Actually, I noticed them some years ago. I have a personal uh, story about it. My daughter, when she was in college at Cal Poly, she began to develop an intolerance to dairy and it was very odd. And none of us in the family um, have dairy allergies. Well, she, she was developing an allergy. We didn't know what it was. Got her tested. They said it was dairy. They just blanket said, stay away from dairy. And I thought to myself, that can't be right. And I started to do some investigation and started to learn about the difference between the A1 beta casein and A2 casein. And I had no idea about, you know, certain cows can be A1, A2, other cows can be A2, A2. And I just thought, well, you know, let's try that. And so I found your products. And then I also noticed, um, this was right before you had, you were organic and that you had become regenerative certified. And being in the industry and, you know, really hearing the trend from consumers and from brands who are trying to source 
differentiated ingredients, that term regenerative has become so common and sought after as something that, you know, people are trying to understand what it means, but they generally get the sense that it means better, a better practice. So, you know, I would love for you to just dive into your decision as an organic dairy. You've been dairying for 30 years. When did you decide to differentiate yourself in those ways, A2 as well as regenerative? Well, I first start with your story and your daughter's story, and, and we hear that all the time, and it's it's very rewarding. You know, that is why we do what we do in terms of trying to bring health to people and health to our consumers. And you know, it's just crazy that 50 years ago, nobody had a dairy intolerance. It was extremely rare. And now two-thirds of the world's population believes that they're lactose intolerant. And, and so that's two-thirds of the world's population. It's a mind-boggling billions and billions of people. And um, many of them are, but uh, literally some of them are really just having issues with the protein in milk. It's kind of similar to the gluten situation where people are now allergic to, to wheat. And it's, it's the wheat and the milk that have kind of changed. It's not really the people or their guts. So when we learned about the A2 situation the a2 beta casein is the original a1 is the mutated gene we there was a book written called the devil in the milk by a fellow named keith woodford out of uh, new zealand and that book came out in 07 08 we read it and it just you know resonated with us it really made a lot of sense uh, stephanie my wife has been into nutrition and um you know, it was always bothersome that folks were like leaving dairy at a pretty fast rate and just couldn't couldn't digest and they were having issues. And so this became the aha moment for us when we finally understood why people could drink goat's milk, but they couldn't drink dairy milk or cow's milk. That just never made sense to us. And, and so now it clearly makes sense. There's just this one little histidine where there's supposed to be a proline on the amino acid chain. And so once we had that knowledge, it's like, wow, you can't just sit on that and unlearn it. You've got to uh, act. So we, we started buying only bulls and semen that uh, came to our farm that was from bulls that carried the A2A2 gene. And the reason we say A2A2 is because the bull or the cow in, in, in the milk cow case inherits a gene from each of their parents. And so when they got an A2 gene from both sets of parents, then they're carrying A2A2, as opposed to A2A1 or A1A1. Those are the other options. And so there's, um, there's about 30, 40% contamination in the dairy industry, according to me. <laughs> and uh, you know, that's just pretty unscientific, but that's how I've seen the numbers. We've, we've tested thousands, tens of thousands of animals, and um, you know, we just kind of get a feel for it in, in a lot of different breeds. And so the milk you buy in the store has a lot of A2 protein in it, but it's also got some A1. And that's why people are you know, having issues with dairy. And, and, and that's why we did what we did. I'm really struck by Blake and Stephanie's approach here. Uh, there's very often criticisms of the food system. You all have heard them. And, and in a lot of cases in agriculture, we tend to get defensive. We tend to dismiss it as people who don't understand uh, or maybe that causation, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. We kind of try to search for reasons why they're wrong rather than listening and understanding and empathizing and seeing if there's ways we can be part of the solution, which is exactly what 
Blake and Stephanie appear to have done here with this A2A2 thing. So I, I just think there is a really deep lesson in here in listening to the market, understanding the market, and uh, finding potential solutions. I just reward their curiosity, their empathy, and their, their willingness to think outside the box. Uh, they found a way to make it work for them and for, and for customers and to find whole new customers that had written off dairy entirely, which is pretty amazing part of the story here. It's also significant that their willingness to find their own unique solution to this problem led them to another new opportunity, which is regenerative certification. And then along came COVID and we survived and moved through that. And we developed a, a new skew or two where we were going to have extended shelf life and we could get a 90-day shelf life on fluid milk. So now that opened the door to go nationwide. Not really a goal that we wanted to do. We never had intention of doing that. Whole Foods was uh, extremely encouraging in that regard. And so as we were getting ready to launch that nationwide, I think that was in 2020, then um, we were telling them that, hey, we're, you know, we are regeneratively certified or regenerative active. We've been working with two different groups as a pilot farm for three or four years. And uh, they said, oh, you say you're regenerative. Do you have a certificate? And so we went back to both of those groups and said, hey, we're launching here in January. Could we get a uh, something that verifies and certifies that we are regenerative? And, and both groups said yes. And within a week or two of each other, we were their very first certified farm worldwide for both the Savory Institute and the Regenerative Organic Alliance, which uh, is, is the rock certification. So that's kind of how that happened. It was more of an accident or coincidence or uh, whatever you want to call it, an act of God, maybe, that we were participating in those programs. We had a product launching nationwide, and that just really helped us. It opened doors. Literally, uh, the Today Show here in, in the U.S. Uh, put us on uh, evening news or however they do that. You know, that, was, that was helpful. Uh, but a lot of other you know, podcasts and brands and, and interviews and forms of news media you know, wanted to uh, understand the story. And I realize that there is a concern out there and a skepticism for these types of regenerative certifications. There's even people who believe we shouldn't try to define regenerative because it can be really difficult to certify what are really principles and then accidentally overemphasize practices that may or may not fit a unique context. There's also a concern that if you sort of create very, very clear boundaries, people will optimize for those boundaries and, and not optimize for the, the underlying principles, which is really the goal. And I understand those concerns completely. But in Blake's case, this is simply a third party validation for the work that they're already doing and that they have been doing for decades to follow these principles. We've always dairied in a manner that looked like we were organic and that we were grazing cows and rotational grazing was kind of the new term back when I was getting out of high school in 1980. So throughout the 80s, we were pretty aware of rotational grazing. But when we bought this farm here, Stephanie and I moved here in late 92, uh, we met a fellow that became our agronomist, uh, John Schneider, who passed away a year ago, but he was just a big help. We worked together a lot for 30 years and learned a lot. And what he was teaching me primarily was that uh, we needed to build organic matter in our soils. And as we focused on organic matter, and we started that 30 years, 31 years ago, as, as far as uh, harvest seasons, we're already 
starting to harvest today. We paid attention to organic matter and we came up with this little 3X treatment, we called it, for a, kind of a field facelift. We knew enough to get away from tilling soil and disking and plowing and, and regenerating a pasture in that regard. And so we, we came up with this 3X treatment, kind of a field facelift, if you will, where we were doing three primary things. We were air, kind of grazing it down extra short and then airwaying and harrowing and kind of exposing some soil or some dirt and uh, broadcasting new seed over that. And then the third step was really compost and adding a little bit of fertility or soil amendments. And we used calcium and ash and different things, but primarily we, we focus on compost now. And so we have enough compost to hit two or 3,000 acres a year, and we just kind of work around the properties that we manage and own or lease. And um, it's fun to watch those fields get better and healthier. And as we were doing that, we were watching and monitoring organic matter the whole time. And so just right to my back outside the house here, this land was probably 2 and 3% organic matter 30 years ago. And today it's testing 12 to 15 pretty easily. And so we have increased organic matter, which is really carbon. So that's 57% carbon. So we're sequestering carbon at a really fast rate. And we're adding that organic matter, which acts like a sponge in the soil. And so our water holding capacity of the soil has gone way up. And that plays out from a farmer's perspective in that during the dry season, and we're pretty dry here for six months and we're really wet for the other six, but we have to irrigate. And so when we first bought this land, we, we had an irrigation system set up to irrigate every eight days. And now we're able to go 30 and 40 days easily in between waterings. We used to irrigate eight or nine times during that season or 10 times even. And now we're just covering the ground two or three times, maybe four during the, the summers. And our yields are up, not down, right? And so we're spending less water, you know, money pumping water or electric wise, less labor, and it's just win, win, win. So that's how we became regenerative. And so regenerative comes along, it's just a word to document what we were already doing, which totally makes sense because all we were doing was honoring the system that I'm gonna say God gave us. And once you understand that system, then you start working in harmony with the system. And so it's working in harmony with nature and not really trying to push any big balls uphill anymore. And one tension in the system that should always be brought up, in my opinion, in every conversation about sustainable agriculture is the cost. If the end result is food that just costs a lot more, is that truly sustainable? Is it equitable? Uh, I mean, are we better off if, if fewer people can afford food. And, and Blake doesn't shy away from these difficult questions. He knows that his products are more expensive and he welcomes competition to try to work together to find ways to drive the price lower while not compromising these principles. But he also thinks that services that benefit the entire planet shouldn't just fall on a small group of consumers to have to pay for. Years ago, we were asked to give a talk at a IT food innovation deal at Stanford. And um, it was about why $10 eggs. And so we had our egg brand, uh, Alexander Kids Eggs, and we still have it and highest price egg out there, but you know, we, we do a lot of handwork. And so I'm driving to that event, wanting to answer that question. My son Christian was supposed to go, but he was at another egg event somewhere else in the country. 
And so I, I, I literally drove for you know 11 hours or something. And I'm thinking, well, here's the answer. This is why $10 eggs at the time. Consumers have a right to pay more to get extra, or they have a right to pay extra to get more, or you know, however you want to look at it. And so as you are consuming our 6% butterfat yogurt or someone else drinking milk or whatever it is, I was literally in Portland um, two weeks ago, stopped at a store that I've never been at, and the gal that runs the dairy department is telling Stephanie, you know, people are coming in and stealing your cream and your half and half. They're like, put it in their pocket and stealing it. They aren't selling them, but they're stealing it. <laughs> Whoa, never heard of that, right? And so I literally stood there at the cream display in this store while she went back to get some more data. And, and I'm looking and I'm comparing, you know, what's special about ours? Well, our half and half is 16%. Everyone else's is 11 or 12. And so the grams of fat in a unit you know, a serving of our half and half is more like five and a half to six grams. Everybody else was three and a quarter to 3.5. I'm there doing the math on my calculator. Then I looked at our cream, same thing. Our cream is 40%. Other creams are 35, 36, 34. You know, they're, they're all just less. And again, we are a high fat company because that's where the nutritional goodness comes from. And so people are gravitating to our products because of taste and health. And that's why it costs more. I think as we get a little larger, learn how to maybe finance regenerative agriculture more holistically and more completely through government type programs and through other things and support farmers you know, that are truly part of the carbon sequestering world. In other words, I believe our cows are contributing to the solutions of global warming, contributing to the, you know, a healthier ecosystem and a healthier climate. And I believe there's cows out there in the United States that aren't contributing at the same level ours are. And so who's going to pay that bill? Right now, Alexander has had to go to the market and get the consumer to pay that bill. I believe that there's hope that somebody else can help shift and redirect dollars and funding in the appropriate place. And this is an excellent point Blake's making here, and we've heard this before on the show. If farmers are expected to perform ecosystem services for the good of the rest of us, for the good of the planet, they shouldn't be expected to do all that for free while still having to compete with a low-cost producer commodity market. But one thing I find endlessly fascinating about the Alexander's story specifically is that carbon credits or regenerative certification or organic or direct to consumer, all that stuff is fine, but it doesn't seem to be their North Star. What they seem to be focused on, at least from my perspective, are healthy family farms, healthy local communities, and healthy people. We did come out with a kefir eventually. It, it hit the market this year in January. It's still kind of a uh, infiltrating across the country. Folks are loving it. It's uh, really high on the chart in terms of the colony forming uni units uh, per gram, I believe. We're in the trillions. Uh, all the competitors brag about being, you know, in the billions. And so we believe the future for Alexander Family Farm products is more in the, the probiotic area. So Stephanie is absolutely a, a 
nutritional food mom that is now a grandmother that loves to discover and make nutritional dense food available for infants and others. And others are now everybody. Everybody needs help with their gut and everybody needs uh, nutritional goodness. And so I think our dream is to make some yogurts that are specific to certain maybe health requirements. And so we would have um, you know, some individual packet yogurts uh, that, that are good for kids and good for adults with a purpose. So now he's touching on yet another interesting trend out there, which is the gut microbiome and healthy probiotics. There's really just so much to this story. But I think I'll close with this answer Blake gave to Jennifer's question about how big does he ultimately want to see Alexander Family Farm get? Our, our written goal is that we want to we want to get big enough to sell 10 percent of our milk. And this is the truth. <laughs> so. We clearly are way past that. We did not. <clears throat> I get choked up on this. We did not build this brand for any other reason other than to create a sustainable farm that <clears throat> our kids and grandkids could have ownership in. And, and I mean mental ownership, not financial ownership. I mean, literally buy in and love it and so we're just trying to bring health to our community and soon you realize you know wealth of nation that that book and and how a rising tide lifts all ships and so we got to lift our neighbors up i don't want to be the last guy standing in our county we darn near got there we had six dairy ownerships in this county a year ago we got down to two at the end of the year and there's a third one back on I want to be a reason that that grows back to six or, or eight or 10. Humboldt County's got 30 or 40 farms and you know, it had 150 when I was a kid. And, it, and I want to be the reason that it grows or doubles. And so it's not about our brand. It's about our community. And uh, it's about communities across the country, whether that's, you know, in a city, inner city, next to a Whole Foods, next to a high-end natural food stores that sells our type of products because our products are expensive because the path we choose is expensive and, and the process is expensive. It's investment in the farm and not the pharmacy. It's getting health through your food, not through your doctor. And so what we're trying to do is, is rewrite American agriculture story. And it's a huge undertaking. It's overwhelming. So Stephanie and I spent last week in Washington, D.C. Uh, we heard from Tom Belsack, Secretary of Agriculture. On Wednesday, he spoke to our group of organic farmers, certifiers, and, and organic trade association people. And uh, the next morning, I had the extreme privilege of just sitting down with him one-on-one uh, -on -one with Stephanie and our marketing director. And uh, it was a 10-minute meeting that lasted 30 or 40 minutes. And so I'm explaining this concept to him. That, you know, regenerative agriculture is the future, and we've got to fix our soils. We've got to you know, fix our climate. And we are here to help. I, I want to be part of the solution. It's not about our brand. I clearly told our brand manager last week, he's like, well, if we raise the price, you know, our sales are going to Then our sales are going to go down. It's not about our sales. It's about being profitable. Because if farms like us can't be profitable, 
then I, I have a lot of sadness for the United States. And that's the direction we've been on, and I want to be able to change that. I want small farms to be cool again and profitable and make sense again. And we want our neighbors to do well. This isn't about us building a brand to sell. It's about, again, bringing health to the farm and to our neighbors. It's no fun being the only farmer in town. You don't have a good allied services. You know, there was a point in time when there was a butcher in every town and a slaughterhouse kind of in every community. And we had this little regenerative system. We just outgrew it at the sacrifice of feeding the world and this, you know, the snowballing effect of better, faster, cheaper. And, you know, that's capitalism. And I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I believe in that. I also believe in taking care of the system and the cycling of, of the nutrients in the soil. And we had forgotten that part in the first attempt. And I, I'm going to say the next hundred years are going to write a different path. And I hope that we're part of that solution. All right, a thought-provoking end to a thought-provoking episode. Thank you so much to Blake Alexander for taking the time to be on the show. Definitely go check out their products. You can find them, I believe, nationwide. Uh, look for Alexander Family Farm in your dairy section. And uh, also check out their website, and I'll leave a link for that in the show notes. Thanks as well to Jennifer Barney for making this story happen on today's episode. Once again, subscribe to her newsletter, The Business of food. I'd also like to give one more shout out to our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the Soy Checkoff. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.